First of all here, verses 14 through 17, your giving is partnership in the gospel. Giving is partnership in the gospel. In verse 14, we see what the gift signifies about the Philippians and their spiritual walk with Christ. Notice what he says here. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. If, if Paul had ended the letter there at verse 13, he just he stopped and hadn't went any further. You can see how the Philippians might have thought that Paul, he, he didn't need or he didn't really appreciate the gift that they had sent him. Instead, he assures them in verse 14 that their giving was kind. The word kind there has the idea of being noble or beautiful. It's a beautiful thing, Paul says, that you shared in my trouble. Paul says you gave sacrificially. I think Paul also sees this gift as something else here. They gave sacrificially. It was a beautiful thing that they had done. If you'll remember last week, I read you from 2 Corinthians how uh, Paul refers to the church at Philippi as how they gave. They gave out of their poverty. These people were poor, and yet they still sacrificed for the gospel. So I think Paul may be saying here, he also sees this gift as freedom from materialism, freedom from greed in their lives. He's saying you can't be generous and give this kind of gift if you're enslaved to these idols that we set up of greed and materialism in our life. The Philippians' generosity shows that they were free from those idols. And you may be thinking, I I don't have idols in my life. We, We need to stop and seriously think about that. Our finances, our material possessions can become things that bring greed into our life. And we set up idols of materialism. But notice that Paul says here, Their gift was kind. It was a beautiful thing. And he says, Yet it was kind for you to share my trouble. The word share that has the idea of partnership. That's where the idea of partnering, your giving is partnership in the gospel. It has the idea of partnering together in the same endeavor. Partnering together to accomplish the same thing. The Philippians were partners. They shared Paul's trouble. They were partners with Paul in his being imprisoned and in defense of the gospel. Paul says, it's not just me here in the prison, in jail for preaching the gospel, but you are here with me. You are partners with me in advancing the gospel. The Philippians participated. They partnered with Paul in advancing the gospel by sending this gift to him. He says, yeah, it was a beautiful thing for you to share in sending money to me to advance the gospel. In verses 15 and 16, and we'll sort of summarize these here, Paul reminds the Philippians of their past partnership with him in the gospel. Notice what he says, And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, and I said last week Macedonia is a region in which the church at Philippi was located. He says, When I left Macedonia, when I left you to continue to take the gospel out, notice what he says, No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, a city to which Paul went to after leaving Philippi, you sent me help for my needs once and again. From the time Paul left the church at Philippi, no church, he says, entered into partnership with him in giving and receiving. And even in Thessalonica, the Philippians sent Paul help. How often? It wasn't just once, but it was more than once that they sent him help. Look back to chapter 1 with me. At verse 3. Paul begins the letter by expressing a prayer of thanksgiving for these Philippians. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. 
always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Why does he do that? Notice what he says. Because of your partnership in the gospel. And when did it begin? From the first day until now. The idea of the first day there is at the point that the Philippians heard the gospel, repented of their sin, and put their faith in Christ. That's what Paul said. At the very time that you became believers, you began to partner with me in advancing the gospel. And the Philippians heard when they received the gospel, they realized something. There's implications for this gospel for other people. We must help Paul to get the gospel to others. Paul called the Philippians support a matter of, notice what he says there, giving and receiving. The words giving and receiving let us know that the Philippians were partners with Paul in advancing the gospel. You were partners with me in receiving, you received the gospel. You realize that this has implications for the entire world. They must hear the gospel and you gave to advance the gospel. Look back to chapter 4 verse 15. And again we read here, he says, No church entered in partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Other churches failed in their obligation to help advance the gospel. Other churches did not support. Paul used the word partnership there. And actually is the Greek word koinia, which means fellowship. You had fellowship, partnership with me in advancing the gospel. Paul without complaining, listen carefully what I said. Paul without complaining pointed out that others had received the gospel, but they had not what? Given to make sure it goes to other people. Notice what I said. Paul's not complaining. He's saying, Philippians... It's very important. You receive the gospel. You receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You receive forgiveness of your sin, but you also give in response to that to ensure that others can hear the gospel. Those other churches had a one-way relationship in the gospel. Remember a couple weeks ago I made a statement, I've got my uh, fire insurance, I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card. Y'all don't... You play Monopoly, right? Okay. You understand what I mean by your get-out-of-hell-free card there? That was the mentality of some of the churches. I'm good. I'm set. I'm going. I'm not worried about nobody else. But the Philippian church had received and they in turn gave that the gospel would go out. Notice in verse 16 that the giving is to be immediate and it's to be consistent. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. What is he saying? Even when I went to Thessalonica, that was the place that Paul went after he left Philippi. So they began to support him. How soon after leaving? Immediately. And he says their giving was consistently. You sent me help for my needs once and again. Look at verse 17. Here's something very important. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul here gets to the real issue of giving. There's actually two issues here. First, giving has to do with the Philippians' growth in Christ. Proof that they were walking worthy of the gospel. The Philippians continued to give to advance the gospel was evidence that Christ had really worked in their lives. It was evidence that the gospel had affected the Philippians and they gave sacrificially to advance the gospel. The gift brought 
Paul joy, not because of the personal benefit to him. Notice what he said there. Not that I seek the gift. Instead, he, what does Paul seek? The fruit that increases to your credit. The gift here, Paul says, is an expression of love. It's an expression of love for the gospel. It's an expression of the gospel at work in the lives of Christians. The gift demonstrates here a love for Jesus. The gift was evidence of fruitfulness in their lives. And that brought Paul great joy. I don't seek the gift. I seek what it tells me about you and how you love Jesus and how you love the gospel. Notice the second issue with giving. He says, fruitfulness that increases to your credit. In other words, giving to the work of the gospel accrues interest to your heavenly bank account, your heavenly retirement. Never thought of it that way, right? Your giving accrues to your interest, your bank account in heaven. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't know everything that's going on in heaven, but I'm pretty sure you're not going to have a bank account in heaven where you have to deposit and withdraw. I don't know how that's going to work. But I, I would almost believe you, you may not have to do that. But it's metaphorical here. It's accruing to your account here. Your giving is a deposit into the bank of heaven, you will, that will multiply and compound interest to your advantage. How many of you like to put money in the bank and have it compound interest? When you give to advancing the gospel, it, it, it compounds interest to your Heavenly account, your eternal retirement. Your giving has the effect of accumulating interest toward your final reward. The idea is that the account you have in heaven is the investment you made in the gospel while you were here on this earth. Heaven is where you will see the return on your investment. What you have given, what you have supported, what you have sacrificially given to will be represented in heaven as those you see who are impacted by the gospel through your giving. What am I saying? Right now, you and I give. And we have the mindset of, I don't see any return on my investment. I'd really like to see some return on my... Now, sometimes we can be fortunate enough to meet people who were in certain areas who were uh, heard the gospel from missionaries that we give money to, and we say, wow... Maybe my giving did affect that. But listen, you know when you're, you're going to get the real picture of what you gave? It's when we get to the new heavens and the new earth. And you see all those people who come to faith in Christ. Your giving has an impact upon people coming to Christ. In Habakkuk, that's in the Old Testament. That's, that's how I have a professor at the seminary that pronounced it Habakkuk. And I, I thought, where is that book in the Bible? I knew Habakkuk, but I didn't know Habakkuk. He was from South Africa. He had an accent. I was from Georgia. I had an accent. <laughs> and Habakkuk, Habakkuk, everybody you want to say it. God says that one day the earth will be filled with His glory. Think about that. There's coming a day, God says that the earth will be filled with His glory. There's going to come a day in the new heavens and the new earth that the earth will be filled with the glory of God. What what is that? We read that and we go, what does that mean? I think God's glory is demonstrated in its highest when He saves sinners. His glory is demonstrated in Jesus who He sends into this world to die for the forgiveness of sin. 
And when people repent of their sin and turn to Christ for salvation, for forgiveness of sin, God shows His mercy and His grace, and that is a glorious thing. One day God says the whole earth will be filled with His glory because the whole earth will be filled with who? Redeemed sinners. Psalm chapter 67 says that one day the ends of the earth will come to fear His name. There's coming a day when everyone on the face of the earth and the new heavens and the new earth will fear God. They'll have a reverence and awe and respect of God because why? They belong to Him. These are statements that let us know that God is going to save sinners. And our giving is a means by which He will do that. Verses 14 and 17 through 17, Paul says, Your giving is a partnership in advancing the gospel. Now in verses 18 through 20, Paul tells us that your giving is an offering to God. Your giving is an offering to God. Paul gives us an idea of what our giving should look like here. Notice what he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Listen carefully here. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Notice first the generosity of the Philippians. Look at Paul's words. I received full payment and more, and I was well supplied. Paul says as far as he's concerned, the Philippians had done everything they could possibly do and what was expected of them. Notice more importantly God's view of their offering. Remember, your giving is an offering to God. Notice what he says about how God sees the giving of the Philippians here. A fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Let's look at these three phrases in detail here. A fragrant offering. In the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Leviticus, you you can read about the offering up of animal sacrifices there. And in particular, in chapter 1, we see the the sacrifice called the, the burnt offering. Animals were laid on an altar... And they were burned as a sacrifice. The burnt offerings were very costly because they completely burned up and nothing was left. These offerings, as you can imagine, had an aroma to them. Some of you guys who like to grill are going, I can imagine being there and smelling the calf or the cow, whatever, burning. But after a while, it got charred, it got burned, it didn't smell so good. The aroma would rise up to God, and this aroma was said to be what? Pleasing to God. The idea was that the sacrifice would result in God's favor, and it was pleasing to Him. The smell part of it is metaphorical. The smell that would rise up, God says, I see the sacrifice, and it's pleasing to me. The aroma from your sacrifice is pleasing. Paul uses the idea here... In relation to our giving. The Philippians offering, which was what? Consistent, immediate, and generous, was what kind of offering to God? It was a fragrant offering to God. In other words, it smelled good to God. It pleased God. Let me ask you a question this morning. What does your giving smell like? What does your giving smell like to God? When you give, does it rise up to God as a fragrant offering? Is it pleasing to God? 
And let me say this. God doesn't need your money. Why? Because everything belongs to Him anyway. That's not the point. God doesn't need your money. Your giving is an indicator of your love for the gospel. Your giving is a reflection of your love for what Jesus has done for you in saving you from your sin. Is your giving a costly sacrifice? Is it pleasing to God? Is your giving a fragrant offering? What does your giving smell like to God this morning? Notice here, it's a sacrifice that is acceptable. In the book of Leviticus, there were rules and there were guidelines for what was acceptable in these offerings. Paul is saying, when you give properly, when you give because of the gospel, when you give because of the grace that comes to you through Jesus, this is an acceptable sacrifice to God. What is our guideline for giving? It's the gospel. It's the grace of God. That's what motivates us to give. Notice next here that it was pleasing to God. Let me ask you a question. Why do you give this morning? Why do you give? What motivates you to give? Do you give to relieve your conscience? You know what kind of giving that is? That's guilt giving. I give to relieve my guilty conscience. Uh, Do you give because maybe the pastor will think that you're super spiritual? Can I tell you right now? I don't know what none of you give. I don't go look and see who's giving and who's not giving. Alright? Do you give because maybe one day the church will recognize you and honor you in some way? You know what kind of offering or giving that is? That's pride offering. That's pride giving. You're looking for recognition for what you give. I ran across a, a story the other day. Two men were stranded on an island. And one of the men was... Terribly distraught. He, he was just beside himself uh, with the fact that they were going to be stranded on this island for the rest of their lives and they'd probably die there. <clears throat> but the guy that was distraught couldn't understand the other guy being completely at peace with his situation. He was just kicked back on the beach under a tree, hands behind his head, relaxing. The other man asked, Why aren't you worried? We'll be here on this island forever and we're going to die here. The other man says, You don't understand. I'm not worried because I make $10,000 a week. The distraught man looked at him and says, that money's not going to do you any good out here. There's no bank. There's nothing to buy. Who cares if you make $10,000 a week? The guy says, you don't understand. I make $10,000 a week and I tithe. My pastor will find me. Everybody's awake now, right? Why do you give? Can you say, I give to please God? Look with me at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Turn back a few pages in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verse, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and listen to what it says, and gave Himself up for us. You notice that very important word there, gave? It has the idea of being sacrificial. And notice how He gave Himself. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. 
The very same terms used to describe our offering, our giving, is used to describe what? Jesus and His offering on the cross. My giving, your giving, is to be on the same level as that of Jesus. It's a sacrificial giving. This is how important grace giving is to God. What does that mean for me and my giving, you may be saying? When you give, here's what you do. You look at the cross. The cross is grace and the cross is giving. The same words, as I said, used to describe our giving describes what Jesus did for us on the cross. We give in response to the grace that's been shown to us through the gospel. If you ever wondered how am I supposed to give, look to the cross and see the sacrifice that was made. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 responds directly to what has been said in verse 17. Not that I seek to give, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul, and I'll apply this to leadership in the church, does not seek the gift in order to have plenty. Instead, Paul says, I seek the gift because of the fruit that increases to your account. Pastors, leaders, deacons, we want God's people to give, right? Yes, we want God's people to give, but we, but when, we fail, when they fail to do so... Is our response more out of concern of not having enough money? Or is it more out of concern of the spiritual condition of our people? Let that sink in. Does it worry us more that we don't have enough money? Or does it tell us, cause us to be concerned if there's a spiritual condition going on in the life of our people? In verse 18, Paul says to the Philippians, in a sense, you have pleased God. You have pleased God in what you have given. You have sacrificially given to advance the gospel, and that pleases God. Now in verses 19 and 20, God becomes the focus. Notice what it says. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Do you see what's going on here? They've given sacrificially out of their poverty. They've given a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. And what does Paul say? Don't worry. My God will do what? When you give, when you sacrifice, you give by looking at the cross, you give in response to the gospel, the love and the grace you've received in Christ. Don't worry. God's going to supply your needs. And He'll do that according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Everything you need, God has. Paul knew that the Philippians would not only receive spiritual blessings for their generous giving, but that my God would supply every need. God will supply every need. God meets the needs of those who give to Him. Do you believe verse 19? Do you believe that? Look back to verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. My God will supply all your needs according to His riches Notice this is very important. According to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Notice that God supplies how? According to and not out of His riches. According to reveals the extent to which God will supply the needs of His people. God's provision would be in relation to His riches. According to and not out of. (coughs) Excuse me. Let me illustrate that for you. Say I have... $10 $10 million, James. And I walk up to you and I give you $10. I have given you 
out of my riches. But if I walk up to you and I give you $5 million, I've given you how? According to my riches. God will meet the needs of His people when they're generous toward giving to the gospel. But I want to be careful here and not lead you to think that God's going to lavish upon us all this material wealth just because we give to advancing the gospel. That's not what's being said here. Notice again in verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God will supply needs now, both physically and spiritually, and He will do so, how? Through Jesus. Remember Paul said, whether abounding or whether brought low, I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me. God will supply your need to make it through every circumstance in life. But we must understand that God will also have a limitless resource in the future as well. After this life, God will provide a new heaven and new earth where His people dwell with Him for all eternity. He will supply everything we need. What am I saying? God supplies here, yes. But our focus should be the future where God supplies everything we need. There is coming a day when the sacrifice will be over. But until then, we give sacrifices. God will take care of you here and now But you give to advance the gospel. You store up treasure where? In heaven and not on earth. Look at verse 20. He says, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. In response to these thoughts, Paul does what? He begins to praise God. The thought of God supplying needs now and even more importantly in the future causes Paul to do what? To break out in praise toward God. To God be glory forever. The praise Paul gives is in relation to, I think, everything that he's discussed in the previous chapters and verses in the book of Philippians. However, Paul's thoughts move beyond the future here. Our ultimate purpose is to bring glory to God now and for how long? Forever. Forever and ever. It gives the idea of the age to come. One day we will join a great host of people who have filled the earth with the glory of God and will be glorifying God for all eternity. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I'm sure it's going to be really, really good. We live here and now with that time in mind. Our giving should be impacted by what awaits us in the future. Let's finish up here in verses 21 and 23. And we'll call this Gospel Greetings and Grace. Paul says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. Especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We see four greetings here. And if you're like me, you've read these verses time and time again, you're like, Paul's greeting people. So what? Notice the first greeting. He says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. It's Paul's greeting here to the congregation. But he says it in a really interesting way. He doesn't say, I greet all of you. He doesn't say, greet the whole congregation for me. He says it in a really interesting way. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul wants to extend his personal greeting, not simply to the congregation at large, but individually he wants them to know that he's sending greeting to each one of them. Notice the second greeting. The brothers who are with me greet you. 
Timothy and Epaphroditus. And there were others who were there faithful with Paul every step of the way. And he says, these brothers greet you as well. So Paul's greeting every saint in the church at Philippi. And all those who are working with him are doing what? They're greeting all the saints at Philippi. And then in verse 22 he says, all the saints greet you. In other words, there's a church here in Rome where Paul's in prison. And they're sending greeting to you, saints, believers in Philippi. And you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal with that? I think Paul's modeling for us an important aspect of Christian life, and that's unity among the saints. He wants us to think congregationally. He wants us to be concerned for the whole congregation. He wants us to think in terms of a relationship with other churches, other congregations, and he wants us to think about the things which uniquely unite us as Christians. Paul is showing us that we ought to have a deep relationship with other Congregations, other churches, as well as those who are spreading the gospel. Paul is modeling a kind of close relationship that should be among believers. See, it's not Red Bud and White Level and, help me out here, Sandy Creek and Castellia. We're not in competition. I'm sorry. We're not in competition to see who can grow the largest church or bring on the newest um, whatever to attract people. We're not in competition, but we are working together to advance the gospel. Our focus as saints is the church. As a whole, must be on the gospel. I think that's what Paul is saying. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 is another one of those verses we read and we miss something. It's very, for me, it's very exciting. We see the power of the gospel for salvation. He says, all the saints greet you. Especially those where? In Caesar's household. Do you see what Paul's saying here? I'm sure you've read that verse like I have many times. Look back to chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being put in jail, in prison, has really done what? What was God's purpose for Paul being there? Did God put Paul in jail personally? No, but he decreed it. He allowed it to happen for the purpose of what? Advancing the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What has Paul told us there? God allowed him to be put in prison for the purpose of advancing the gospel among who? The whole imperial guard. And we talked about that being those... uh, large group of soldiers that were responsible for guarding Caesar and all his, I don't know, I guess they called it a cabinet back in those days, but all his people, I guess you'd call them, they were set to protect them and guard them. And what does Paul say? That the gospel has become known by how many of those people? Throughout the whole imperial guard. Paul was chained to a soldier 24 hours a day. They rotated he wasn't chained to all seven or 8,000 soldiers, but I'm sure he was chained to quite a few. Do you think Paul shared the gospel with them? Oh. Do you think some of those repented and trusted in Christ? Yes. And what did they do in turn? They went out and told the other soldiers. Paul is saying, Philippians, I just want you to know, there are Christians, as he says there in verse 22, Where? There are Christians where? In the household of Caesar. In the very household of the Roman ruler, 
God has saved sinners and brought them into His church. There, there's history records, and they're sort of, it can't be confirmed, but a lot of people say, one guy in particular, Jerome, writes in his records that the wife of Nero became a Christian. She heard the gospel and trusted in Christ. What we need to understand is that God is able in the darkest places to bring sinners to Himself and build up the church of Christ. We must be people of hope. It doesn't matter what's happening in our society. The gospel is still the power of God and the salvation for them that believe. And God can change anyone, anywhere, anytime. Can I, can I confess to you this morning? I pray a particular day of the week for the leaders of this country. And you know how many times I've prayed for God to save them? And at the same time, I would do what? Those people, God would never save them. Nobody's beyond the reach of God and His grace. Even those in the household of Caesar come to know the gospel. Let's look one last time at Philippians. Verse 23 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word your there is plural. He's talking to everyone. Paul's praying for each member to know the grace of Christ. He's saying God's grace be poured out on you until it seeps into the very core of your being, into your very spirit. Why would Paul pray such a prayer? Again, I think it's a prayer of unity. Unity in the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Our giving matters to God. Just a few points of application here in the forms of questions. Do I view my Christian giving as a partnership in the gospel? When we take up the offering on Sundays, when you drop your envelope in, do you ever have the thought, my giving is partnershiping with whoever it may be to advance the gospel? And I know some of you are saying, well, we have to give money to keep the lights on and and pay you, and, uh, and which I'm, I'm very grateful. Don't misunderstand. I'm grateful that you've seen fit to pay me. What better could it be? I get paid for studying God's Word and coming here and giving it to you on Sunday morning. That's, that's the greatest job in the world. I don't know about you. I, I like that idea. But is your Christian giving, do you give, do you see it as a partnership for the gospel? Second question. Do I believe that God will supply what I need if I give sacrificially? Or do I give in such a way that sacrifice will be avoided. Do I see that generous giving is not the same as sacrificial giving? Do you know that generous giving is not the same as sacrificial giving? I can give generously, but it may not cost me anything. It may not be a sacrifice for me to give. And one last thing. Do you hold on to everything that comes into your life tightly? If you do, it will not be easy for you to give in a way that pleases God. Freely, you the Christian have received, and freely you are to give. Freely God places in your hands, and freely you are to give. Let's pray.